Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings fellow time travellers, always great to have you with me on the journey through history. As always before I start the episode, a huge thanks goes out from me and Paul to all the people who support the podcast, vodcasts, the whole kit and caboodle by subscribing to my Patreon site. It's the financial support from the Patreon site that enables everything else. It's a symbiotic relationship that we've got going there. Uh, So if you're not part of the Patreon family and you'd like to be, go to patreon.com, search for me by name and part with some cash, monthly or uh, or annually, it's cheaper by the dozen um, and you get access to vodcasts and question and answers and competitions and also brings you into contact with like-minded people uh, questioning, curious interested, um, historically fascinated types um, who all interact with one another so time to strap ourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop in my love letter to the world, recorder, microphone action Distilled from barbarian stock, harried by Islam to the south and by Vikings to the north, a man of war, a formidable force and a conqueror supreme, king among Franks, fighting to build a vast kingdom stretching from Scandinavia to the Adriatic, crowned emperor by Pope Leo III, the Holy Roman Empire was born. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi, Neil. In the last episode, we travelled with you to the wild, windswept island of Lindisfarne, where the Vikings wrote themselves into the history books. Which moment in history are we heading to this week? Hi, Paul. Well, it's 800 AD uh, at this moment in time, and we're leaving behind the beautiful east coast of England and travelling across what at this time was a rough, tough, ragged European mainland. We're on our way to St Peter's in Rome, where Charlemagne, the big man himself, is about to kneel down and be crowned emperor by the Pope. Short answer to the question is we're in the court of Charlemagne. It's in Aachen, in North Westphalia. It's all very Germanic. Last week we were on Lindisfarne with the advent of the, the Vikings, you know, the, the sudden dramatic arrival of the of the peoples of Scandinavia and the impact that they made and then continued to make on Europe for hundreds of years and they've never gone. They're, they're marbled through the the stuff of, of Europe and, and further afield, like lettering through Blackpool Rock. And so we talked about Charles Martel the week before that and the turning back of the, the Umayyad Caliphate that Muslim Umayyad Caliphate at the Battle of Tours in 732 
Well, Charles Martel uh, was the father of Pepin, Pepin the Short. And Pepin the Short was the father of Charlemagne. And Char- Charlemagne is Charlemagne means Big Charlie, basically. Big Charles, Charles the Great, however, however you want to translate it. Was he tall? Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, what, what we're dealing with here, specifically, really the moment, is that he was crowned emperor, uh, holy Roman emperor, on Christmas Day, uh, 800 AD, by Pope Leo III, um, in the Basilica of St. Peter's in Rome. It's a big, it's a big event. Charlemagne came to literacy late in life. You know, he learned to read and, and write, you know, when he was a mature man. Up until that point, he hadn't had the gift of literacy. But when he became aware of it, he understood profoundly the value of, of men of learning. And so he gathered around him at Aachen uh, all, the, all the smartest guys he could find. And one of them was a layman called Einhardt. Uh, he was a, of Germanic descent, that part of, the, that part of Europe. Uh, and he, he was the court biographer. He kept a running commentary going about what Charlemagne was getting up to. And when he described him, when he wrote about Charlemagne at that crowning, that coronation in the Basilica at St. Peter's, uh, he described Charlemagne as large and strong and of lofty stature. So a big guy, you know, big Charlie. They didn't call him that for nothing. It wasn't ironic. They were, they were being descriptive. Einhardt said that his eyes were large and animated and that his gait, his walk, was firm and his whole carriage manly. Let's indulge ourselves in the thought that he looked the part. You know, if you're going to if you're going to crown someone Holy Roman Emperor, you want him to look like that. You'd want him to have that way of it. Oddly enough, though, it's described there and elsewhere that um, Charlemagne's voice was quite high pitched, um, and not what you'd expect. You know, he might have been maybe maybe picture somebody like Sean Connery in his prime, <laughs> but he didn't sound like Sean. I think mean, more of a squeaky voice, uh, and he kept a long and luxuriant uh, moustache as well. Which you know, take it or leave it. I suppose that's going to appeal to some people and not appeal to to others. Does being the Holy Roman Emperor is that just a religious thing? Well, it's it's all part of the the significance of the moment. Let, let's rewind a little bit. Um, it was a political act making him Holy Roman Emperor on the part of Pope Leo III. Earlier in the same, or in the year before, in 799, um, Pope Leo had been attacked uh, by, by Romans, because uh, he was in Rome, Romans in Rome, and they, those that came after him, they were planning to uh, pluck out his eyes and cut out his tongue. Uh, and he, got, he gave them the slip, and he ran for the protection of, uh, of Charlemagne. So he fled Rome and sought out Charlemagne as his protector and that alliance was there. And Charlemagne counselled him to return to Rome, which he did. Uh, and he, you know, he reclaimed and re-established his, uh, his position there. And the way it was set up, the way it, the way it was described, it was as though Charlemagne just happened to be at Mass on Christmas Day in the Basilica and all spontaneous like Pope Leo just said hey since you're here let's make you emperor you know that's that's how it's described so it was just a, a, a coming together a, a flash of inspiration on the part of the Pope but you know logic dictates that it must have been something that was organised and planned 
you know, weeks and months in advance. But it's this is how it's portrayed. But by 800 AD, the glory days of of Western Rome, the Western Roman Empire, were long gone. Uh, and, and this is really what's fascinating to think about. You know, we indulge ourselves in Europe that you know we're kind of a centre of civilization, which we have been for a long time, but not in not in 800 AD we weren't. Rome had brought Roman civilization, and that that lasted for the centuries of of the Western Roman Empire. But when that fell apart, civilization went down the pan, and it was rough. West of the Elbe River, it was rough. You know, you might imagine it as being a kind of a you know a backwater, a brackish lagoon. It was stagnant. It was, it was ruled over, or it was controlled by men who called themselves kings, which I suppose you can call yourself king, but. From a practical point of view, they were warlords. They were those individuals, those men who were strong enough to uh, force their will on other people. And they gathered around them and just about kept in control other warlike men. And they used them to get their way, you know, and to push their will on other people. And Charlemagne was one of those. But Europe at that point was now as rough as a badger's arse. It was it was no civilization. I mean, when when we we did uh, when we we thought about um, Charles Martel driving the Umayyad Muslim army away from Tours in seven three two, and eventually he pushed them all the way all the way south of the Pyrenees back into Spain. Uh, but the civilization south of the Pyrenees under the Caliphate was orders of magnitude more sophisticated than anything that was in Europe at that time. They were uh, masters of wonderful architecture. The, the, actually, the, the Umayyad Caliphate didn't long outlive the disaster at Tours, and it fell within a couple of decades of, of 732. It, it actually was overthrown as a heresy, and it was replaced by the Abbasid Caliphate. And the Abbasid Caliphate was a high point of Islamic culture for all time, actually, the heights of art and culture and learning, there has never been anything as great in the Islamic world since. It was under the Abbasids, for example, that the, the, they got to work translating the, the Greek philosophers and the Greek men of learning. So Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and, and, and scores of others, all the, all the manuscripts that, that, that the Abbasids could get their hands on that were in Greek they translated into Arabic. And it was that act of translation that meant that all of that wisdom survived to then be handed back or to be handed on into Europe at the time of the Renaissance. Otherwise it would have been lost or it may have been lost, but it was preserved and was in a fit state to be handed on because of the Abbasid Caliphate. So that was civilization compared to what was going on in the, in the court of Charlemagne in the late 700s and, and by 800 AD. It was, a, it was a rough and uncultured place. Charlemagne was descended from Charles Martel via his son Pepin and then Charlemagne. But the forebears of, of Charles Martel had settled uh, territory that we would understand as Belgium and then they spread, and some of them uh, colonised or settled in what we know as France, Gaul, as, as far as they were concerned. And from them, from that line, that bloodline, came the Merovingian kings, who were named after the first of their line, which was Merovech. 
his grandson, Merovich's grandson, was Clovis, Clovis I, and he converted to Christianity somewhere around the start of the 6th century. All the way through this story of the world, it's been people on the move, so there were, there were different peoples all around. Surrounding those, those Franks, those proto-Franks, there were Avars in the east, that's the mob that, that brought with them the stirrup. They're the first people that we know of that controlled the horse using stirrups from saddles. Uh, there were Bretons and Gascons to their west, there were Lombards in the southeast. So pe people, people all around. Now those, those Merovingians uh, were usurped by Pepin, Pepin of Herstal. He overthrows the Merovingian lineage. He is the father of Charles Martel. Charles Martel is the father of Pepin the Short, and Pepin the Short is the father of Charlemagne, Charles the Great, Big Charlie. And in the years you know, before the, his coronation in Rome, he was always at war. Charlemagne existed like a shark that just kept swimming rather than stop and drown. He just kept moving. So he took Bavaria, he took Lombardy, he took Saxony, he took other places besides until he, 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 he pulled together Europe. And the point is that what Charlemagne pulled together was remembered ever after. And he was crowned as emperor by Leo III in Rome. You know, the crown was put upon his head and he was established. That was the, that was the, the return of the Roman Empire in the West. And it's now holy. You know, it's holy Roman Empire, you know, anointed by the Pope, anointed by God. And although it didn't outlive him, although it began to break up again, it is what everyone ever since has sought to recreate, right down to and including the, the European Union. You know, the, the EU is yet another attempt to reunite the Europeans in the same way that Charlemagne had done. And when I mentioned that it was, it was politically astute or it was politically important that Leo did what he did, but for a couple of reasons, you know, we've run across this before, by... Uh, indulging himself with making him emperor, making him the Holy Roman Emperor, Pope Leo is, is also saying, I'm actually on top of this. You know, I'm in number one position because I get to put the crown on his head, not the other way round. I make him, he doesn't make me. So it was another of those instances where the church was reminding everyone that it was top dog. It's that tussle that keeps happening. You know, is it, is it earthly power or is it divine power? Which is, it's another of those moments where, right, the Pope says, it's us, it's the church, we're in charge. But it also mattered because out east, remember there's still an empire in the east centred on Constantinople. But there, as far as uh, Rome is concerned, the faith is sliding. It's come adrift in many, many ways. But you might summarise it by saying in the east, Jesus was, he was regarded as the son of God, but he was not equal to God. He was God's son, so he was that little bit less than God, as far as the Eastern Church was concerned. And that was, that was heretical, as far as the church in Rome was concerned, which, which had agreed since the Nicene Creed, Constantine and all of that, 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 that God and Jesus, and indeed the Holy Spirit, had all been there at the beginning. They'd always all been there. So not, none had primacy above the other. And certainly, you know, Jesus was not less than God. They were one. And that, that, that trinity came together as one thing of equal divinity. So there was this schism 
There's this separation between East and West. And so Leo III, the Pope, needed to put in place in the West, as emperor, somebody who thought the same way he did. This is this this was this is the return of and the underlining and the reaffirmation of an empire in the West that thinks the way the Western faith has always thought that God and Jesus are of equal primacy. So it was a very it was a very astute political move, according to Einhardt. Uh, almost as soon as the coronation had taken place, Charlemagne privately thought he had made a mistake in allowing it to happen the way it did because it made the church his master rather than the other way around. So although he went along with it, according to Einhardt, he quickly realised afterwards that shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I shouldn't have allowed that to happen quite that way because now I'm, you know, a hierarchy has been established that I'm not thrilled about. So it's, it's like warlords, religion, emperors, they're all sort of tussling with each other. Yeah, it, it's, it's febrile. I mean, it's it's unfolding over long periods of time. You know, it's it's not happening day by day, minute by minute. I mean, it is, it is spread over long periods. But but yes, it's a uh, what crystallised, what, what what coalesced, what came together under under Charlemagne was Europe as we understand it. You know, the the, the empire that he pulled together, the, the Holy Roman Empire. That you know, that frankly was never the same again after he died. But it 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 was a moment of such significance that people never forgot it. And they were always, ever after, for centuries to come, and still to this day, men, people, whatever, are, are kind of reaching back, tr- trying to get their hands on it again. You know, the, the, the determination of the, you know, the, the Ursula von der Leyen's and the rest to, to establish with the European Union a centralised, top-down, authoritarian empire in, in all but name. Whether they're doing it consciously or not, they're, what's manifesting there is the same ambition that was there with Charlemagne. That, that's ever ever since he did it, and although it only really existed in that sort of perfect form while he was alive, in all the centuries since his death, people have have sought that unity again, or some people have that desire to create a European empire. Is is Charlemagne's legacy? I mean, he, he was quite the guy. I mean, there's, there's just no getting away from it. As I say, he you know he, he came to learning later in life. Uh, he loved to swim, and so he based his court at Aachen, where there were hot springs, warm springs. A bit like Bath, but not as good. Um, and he, he, So he had a base of operations there, and he, he attracted towards him all sorts of men of learning. So there's Einhard, Alcuin of York, he was the one who, who wrote that, you know, that some of the devastating criticisms of Lindisfarne. When Lindisfarne was sacked and all the monks were killed by the Vikings, it was Alcuin who was amongst those who wrote at the time, this is punishment. We, as a Christian brotherhood, had this coming, and they had it. You know, this has happened. This hasn't happened by accident. This is God's will. You know, so Alcuin, who was amongst the, the brightest of the bright of his, of his time, he had been pulled into Charlemagne's orbit as well. And and Charlemagne, you know, it's quite touching. He he practiced writing all of his life. He had a wax tablet by his bed that he could practice his letters in with a stencil. You know, and then you know smooth it out again, and then and do it again. So he had that by his bed so that he could practice his writing. He reached out, uh, as well as being a warlord, he was also able to establish a diplomatic relations. He was on good terms with the Abbasid Caliphate. He established good relations there, and amongst other gifts that he was sent, he was sent a white elephant from the Caliph Harun al-Rashid, 
the big beast was called Abul Abbas. When you say that such and such is a white elephant, as in, you know, it's it's great, but it's a bit of a, <laughs> you know, it's a bit of an expensive waste of time. If you'd been given a white elephant, it was a great honour to be given a white elephant. So you had to keep it. You know, you couldn't sell it or kill it. You had to keep it. It was a white elephant. But they were enormously expensive and awkward to maintain. And it's, that's the, it was that tradition of the, of the, of the caliphs giving these things as, as presents that we get this idea of that, you know, that, that, see that building over there? It looks good, but it's a white elephant. You know, it's more expensive to keep than it's actually worth. That's where we get that from. So this is why it's a moment, because it's a moment of enormous significance, uh, Charlemagne being made emperor in that way. He's already a powerful figure, but by being made Holy Roman Emperor, and that happening in the Basilica of St. Peter's, and it happening under the hand of the Pope, Leo III. What it brought together, what was crystallised in that moment, the Roman Empire in the West was, was reborn, and upon its foundations, upon those foundations, human beings in Europe have sought to build upon again and again and again. There's a good, there's a good line from Einhardt that, you, that we should probably quote um, when, he's, when he's describing the, the coronation. He says, On the most holy day of the birth of our Lord, the king went to Mass at St. Peter's and as he knelt in prayer before the altar, Pope Leo set a crown upon his head. Just like that. Just, just on a whim while all the Roman populace cried aloud, long life and victory to the mighty Charles, the great and pacific emperor of the Romans, crowned of God. After he had been thus acclaimed, the Pope did homage to him, as had been the custom with the early rulers, and henceforth he dropped the title of patrician and was called Emperor and Augustus. You know, so reaching all the way back to the, to the high days of Rome to, you know, to, to gild his, his status as emperor, you know, it's... It's quite the moment. And how much land did did his empire take in? I don't know the square mileage or the square kilometreage, uh, but he was bordered in the in the far north by the Scandinavian world. You know that was that was beyond his that was beyond his remit, and all the way to the Adriatic in the south. So that whole swathe of territory, north to south, was was under Charlemagne, and that was the Holy Roman Empire, and it was it was never as great again. The name Charlemagne, it, it sort of brings to mind a sort of kind of magical court and... Yeah, yeah, there's a lovely, there's a lovely um, cadence to the word, isn't there, Charlemagne? It's, it's nice to say. Uh, and, I, I mean, he's not, he's not remembered the way he is for nothing. It, it's not some kind of lucky happenstance. He, he deserves to be remembered for his greatness. He was a man of war, you know. He'd come from that, but I mean, his his deepest his deepest ancestral roots were were Roman foederati, which is to say, foederati are those uh, barbarian tribes that were brought into the tent by the Romans. They were made client uh, peoples who would fight Roman battles on behalf of Rome, and then eventually, in the due course of time, they were given rights to be within the empire. So his his lineage went all the way back to people that had got into bed with the Romans when the Romans were still in power. So he, he had that he had that depth to him to his to his bloodline, and then as well as being you know an acquisitive warlord who conquered territories, he, he was also this man of learning and culture, and he appreciated all of that. Alcuin of York at, at Aachen developed along with other scribes the Carolingian minuscule, 
which is a, a like a typeface, if you like. It's not type, obviously, it's, it's handwritten, but, you know, it's a style of writing uh, that was praised ever after. It's still praised because of its legibility. Uh, manuscripts written in Carolingian, Ca- Carolingian from Carlos, from Charles, from Charlemagne. Carolingian minuscule is, was, by the standards of the day, very, very easy to read. You know, see, and all of that, and being, you know, a, a Frank, a Frankish warlord, in good terms with the Abbasid Caliphate, out east, you know, and receiving white elephants and gathering the brightest men of the age to him, is is worth remembering. Charlemagne's ghost and the greater European land he built casts a spell. Civil war and bloodshed splits the vast empire. Peace is brokered and kingdoms created. East, West and Middle Francia. Greed, grasping ambition, sorrow and Charlemagne's plain blue Frankish cloak. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.